Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Welcome. We have a new sermon series starting this week on the letter of Peter. The, 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 it is toward the back of your Bibles. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read it, but we are going to spend some time reading through this letter. Um, I encourage you to read it at home. It can be tough. Uh, what poor Roger had to read today uh, amounted to about a 20-verse run-on sentence. Uh, it can be tough at times, and sometimes you just have to chew on a little bit at times. Uh, but it is a very worthwhile letter, one that as I study and reflect on it more, I come to appreciate it. So uh, I am, because it's so hot, I'm thinking a lot about fall, which means I'm thinking a lot about Halloween, which is, uh, Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday, but Halloween runs a close second. Uh, It is a day where you don't have to be good, uh, and you get candy anyway, and even in the midst of the darkness, you get to have a lot of fun. Um, so uh, one of the things that I try to do every Halloween is watch uh, The Great Pumpkin. Charlie Brown, how many of you have seen that? Okay. So for once I have, uh, I, I, I have a pop culture reference that skews away from 80s and 90s children like me to a little bit older. So the whole idea of uh, The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, is that Linus, Uh, who is one of the characters in Peanuts, has this belief in the great pumpkin who will rise each Halloween to give presents to the children, but he will rise from the pumpkin patch, which is the most sincere. So this is what Linus does every year. He looks for the most sincere pumpkin patch, and he will stay there while his friends are out having fun and getting candy, just waiting for the great pumpkin to arise. And this kind of is the story that runs through the movie. And at the very end, as so many people have tried to talk Linus out of this belief that he has in the great pumpkin, he still clings to it. He writes a letter to the great pumpkin. At the very end, he tells Charlie Brown this. Just wait till next year, Charlie Brown. You'll see. Next year, at this same time, I'll find a pumpkin patch that is real sincere. And I'll sit until the, in that pumpkin patch until the great pumpkin appears. He'll rise out of that pumpkin patch and he'll fly through the air with his bag of toys. The great pumpkin will appear and I'll be waiting for him. I'll be there. I'll be sitting there in that pumpkin patch and I'll see the great pumpkin. Just wait and see, Charlie Brown. This is uh, one It was Charles Schultz's way of talking about his own struggles with faith. I don't know, uh, some Charles Schultz fans may know here, I don't know. I do know he lived in Minnesota. I don't know if he was a Lutheran, but Charles Schultz struggled with faith throughout his life. So he was working out so many of the struggles in the character of Linus, who is going to this pumpkin patch every year and waiting for somebody to show up who just doesn't show up. And we learn a lot about ourselves from the character of Linus, but this kind of hope that he has. It's a really tough hope to hang on to. It's one where he has to find 
the pumpkin patch that's the most sincere. And when the great pumpkin doesn't appear, he says, okay, well, that obviously wasn't the right pumpkin patch. I need to go move and find another pumpkin patch. Once I figure this out, then I know that the great pumpkin will appear. And even in that special, he writes a beautiful letter to the great pumpkin at the end where he says, great pumpkin, if you're a fake, don't tell me. I don't want to know, right? It's um, incredibly moving. It's incredibly touching. But I uh, want to talk to Linus today, and you guys will get to over here to talk about what the true nature of hope is and what it truly means to have hope, those of us who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So, oh no, this got all, this got all uh, messed up. So anyway, well that that's the Lord making fun of my uh, uh, it's the Lord making fun of my uh, show off in this erudition. Uh, um, yeah, the slide got all messed up in that. So anyway, a living hope is what Peter says to these congregations who are scattered all through Asia, Asia Minor. He calls them the diaspora. He says to all of you, you were born anew into a living hope. Right? That's an important qualifier. Right? What, uh, what Linus has, I would say, is a uh, defiant hope, but it's not a living hope. What makes a hope alive is that, right, if I want to know that, that um, you guys are alive and you're not statues, as long as we're not in the matrix, I'm going to go over and poke one of you. And then uh, after uh, you call the synod office and say, my pastor just poked me during a sermon, uh, I, I, well, before, before that, uh, you guys will be like, why did you poke me? I'm alive. I'm here. I'm not a statue. Right? Have you ever seen that in like New Orleans or whatever, where they have people that act like statues, and and you go up and and you you kind of touch them, and they and they sometimes they're good and they'll keep their pose, but sometimes they'll be like, what are you doing? That's the kind of hope that we have. That that uh, when something is alive, it reacts. It's with us. We don't have to wait for it. And this is another thing that I'll say. What Linus is looking for in that pumpkin patch, more so than seeing the great pumpkin, I think, is to be able to tell all of his friends, look, there's the great pumpkin. I was right. He's looking for vindication. But what a living hope provides is something that's more than vindication. What a living hope provides is victory. Right? A living victory. So this is incredibly important to the time which First uh, Peter is writing his letter. Now, we think about persecution, and the letter will talk about fiery trials that people are going through. When we think about persecution, we think about those 1950s Hollywood movies. I'm going way back today. Quo Vadis. Ben-Hur, right? We think when we, when we see Romans and we think about persecution, we think about crosses, we think about lions, we think about the Colosseum. But that for the Romans was, and for the Christians in Rome, was like the tip of the iceberg. 
Roman society was organized not just according to what your job was. It was organized according to who your family was and the kinds of gods that your family worshipped. In one of the most important pieces of literature in the Roman period, it's the Aeneid, written by Virgil. Uh, And Aeneas is running out of the city of Troy, which is about to be burned down. And he goes back to his house to get two things, his dad and the gods of his household. Right? We think of our religion as just kind of a personal choice. So you go to work, and uh, you know, if you work with somebody who's like, I, I, I worship the, you know, the god Zorg, you'd be like, that is really interesting. That's great. <laughs> but in Roman times, if you went to work and said, you know, I worship the god Jesus, they'd be like, well, this guild is dedicated to Mercury. How can you work here? So the persecution that is going on among the early Christians, our, our imaginations are filed up, are fired up by thinking about the violent kinds of persecution that we see in movies. But the persecution that Christians were going through was just a day-to-day thing. It was alienating friends and family members. It was losing opportunities. Well, we were going to give him that promotion but he's part of those crazy uh, Christian, uh, that weird cult. You know, uh, they, they, they drink somebody's blood every day. So weird. We don't, we don't need that. Uh, you know, we don't need that in this guild. This is the kind of persecution that these people are going through every day. It's not a large stab wound. It's a thousand little cuts that they are having in the lives that they are trying to lead. It's persecution sometimes that is just as difficult because it's the persecution many of you, I think, have experienced of being politely told no, having doors slammed in your face every day, being told that you can't sleep somewhere. That's the kind of persecution that Peter is writing writing about, and he is giving a locker room pep talk to these Christians who are in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, right? It's a locker room pep talk. Hey, we did some bad things out there. We made some mistakes. We got beat up. But here's the game plan. And so Peter is going to give the game plan to these Christians. And he's going to talk about it in terms of a living hope, not something that you have to wait for, but a hope that is there with you now. So there's this great line where Peter says, uh, and it's rarely translated correctly, it's in verse 13, it says, gird the loins of your mind. Rarely will you see that translated in English, which is a little bit different than, you know, kind of prepare yourselves, right? When I hear someone talking about girding my loins, uh, I, I don't maybe want to say some of these things in mixed company, but I think about, you know, I need to be, tough, I need to woman up, I need to be find some strength, right? Uh, right? No, it's, it's true, women are way stronger than men. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Uh, it, um, and I'm just kidding, by the way. Uh, right? I'm thinking about I'm thinking about all those things, right? I'm thinking of something physical. Maybe I'm thinking like Ned Stark, right? 
this famous saying of the Stark family, Game of Thrones fans, now, uh, now I'm going back to the 2010s. Right? What's this famous saying? Brace yourselves, because winter is coming. Does that mean it's very nice here, and you know, one day winter is coming, so you might think about maybe if you want a little later, maybe we can go cut some firewood? No, what does that mean? Winter's coming. I feel a cold wind. I, I need to get ready right now. My body is going to start feeling it, right? It's that feeling that you get, not that I go to the gym anymore, where you're like, all right, I gotta lift this weight. I gotta brace myself. I gotta get ready. I gotta take a couple breaths. You know, maybe I'll stretch before I do this. Okay, here I go, right? This is what Peter is saying. That the thing that you're hoping for, that the God who is coming to be with you is incredibly close. It's going to be here sooner than you think. It is right next to you, so you had better get ready for it. This is not, okay, just buck up. One day things are going to be a little bit easier. This is right now. The thing that you hope for is coming. And so, you've all seen the bumper sticker? Jesus is coming back. Everybody look busy. <laughs> Peter puts it this way. Don't get schematized by the world around you, right? Peter understood this, that the world that these early Christians lived in noticed that they were being deprogrammed and was trying to reprogram them. Have you ever noticed when you go from one place to another, right? Uh, there's uh, uh, a famous episode of Seinfeld, they're all famous, where um, George's fiance was hanging out with uh, Jerry and Elaine and like all his friends. And he went, there's relationship George and work George, right? This is what Peter is saying. Don't have that distinction between Christian Thaddeus and work Thaddeus, right? Do not get schematized by Roman Thaddeus. Don't be transformed into that because Jesus has already left, left that behind in your life. You now have a different set of standards and values. You're not going to be chasing that, uh, you're not going to be running up that hill. You're not going to be chasing that carrot that Roman society is dangling in front of you anymore. You are valued, you are loved just for who you are. You do not need to go and sit in a pumpkin patch and find a sincere one in order to be vindicated. You have a victory already. And this victory comes not from how sincere your pumpkin patch is, but from how sincere your God is. Now, when we translate this word hope, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times we think of hope as not yet. Uh, we hope for that. Um, if you guys remember Francisco, who uh, who I've gotten to know and who came and preached here, uh, his big uh, his big sermon is I don't do hope anymore, because hope means that when you are working for something, when you're working for justice, when you're working on behalf of your neighbor and things don't go as well, it means you stop 
and you go, hey, I know someday it's all going to work out. I'm going to hope for it. So one way to translate the word hope is expectation. Now, maybe it's only because I have little kids. I know that they do not grasp this distinction between hope and expectation, right? If I say, hey, I hope we can stop by Purple Penguin Henderson and get some snow cones later, what they're going to hear is an expectation, right? If I say, oh, it's too late, we can't really go to Purple Penguin, this is what I'm going to hear. But you said we were going to Purple Penguin. And what Peter is telling us that we need to do, instead of just hoping that when God says that, uh, that I'm going to act, we need to hear that as an expectation. Because God's will is for these things to be done. It is God's will for people to be loved. It is God's will for people to be seen who they are. It is God's will for people to drop their baggage. It is God's will to belong into a community when they're, where they're not judged for who their parents are or what their clan or what their occupation is. It is God's will that we are loved, that we are forgiven, and that we are given life. And so what God did just to make sure that this happened is God wrote a contract in the very blood of his son Jesus saying that these people will have life. They will have it abundantly. I am signing my name on it. And so when we have hope, what we are looking for is not forward for the great pumpkin to arise out of the pumpkin patch. What we are looking what we are looking to do is look backward. Because what we have in Jesus is like a spiritual trust fund. Anyone know? If you are a trust fund child, please come and talk to me after church about the great ministries that we'll do together. Uh, but anybody, I went to college with a few kids like this. They were like trust fund children. right? One of them, uh, I won't say his name, I doubt he's watching, but uh, there was always this time in college where we'd come and there were no classes yet and we were registering for classes and everybody was just having fun and we were all seeing each other from the summer. And then we were all sitting around and we said, you know, I really wish all of college could be like this. And my friend, the trust fund kid, was like, hey, guys, every day of college is like this for me because he didn't care. He had a trust fund, right? That's the difference between hope and expectation. We were busting our butts, hoping that we would have some kind of career, but he had a trust fund with his name on it. He had expectation. So the way that he lived, and oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm telling you, don't live like he did, but live spiritually like he does, flagrantly, abundantly, joyfully, always embracing the things that are being given to you. Because what it is, brothers and sisters, it is a new birth. It says that uh, in this run-on sentence at the beginning and at the end of this run-on sentence. We have a living hope because we've been given a new birth. And we have a living hope because our hope is God. Our hope and our faith is God and not, it, your translation says set upon. Uh, ben uh, was sitting at the table with me when I was like, this doesn't say set upon, it says is God. Your hope is God and it's called a new birth because it's happening constantly because of who Jesus is in your life. It happened for me this week. Um, I have been kind of burning the candle at both ends and at the middle. And uh, I was uh, getting JP ready to go to daycare. Marissa was out of town. Uh, Noah was at grandma's. 
JP was incredibly sluggish. I mean, really sluggish. And you've, you've seen my younger son, JP. He's, he's a wild man, usually. So I took him to daycare, and he was just clinging to me. And the people at daycare were kind of like, ah, oh, you, you, you really sure you want to drop him off here? And I was kind of hedging a little bit. But on the way in, I had gotten a death call from one of my patients. So I was like, I, I, I just I need to drop this kid off. There, 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 are, there are other people who need me. And, and, and JP was holding his toy, and I was, I was kind of uh, you know, death marching him up to his classroom. And he dropped his toy. It was a Lego, and it spread all over the place. So I got on the ground. And uh, as I was getting on the ground uh, to pick up all the Lego pieces that fell, I saw JP on the ground nearly in the fetal position. I got the sense in my head, what the heck am I doing? So I took a couple deep breaths, and uh, I called my fellow chaplain, my colleague, saying, I am so sorry. I am so sorry right now. I hate to do this to you. I know we're all busy. I have a death visit right now, and I just can't go. My son is very sick. And I was pleading with my colleagues, saying, I'm so sorry. I hate to do this to you. I, I, I hate to put this on your plate, but I, I just need help right now. And my colleague said, put me on speakerphone. I'd like to say a prayer for your son. And so as he said, his characteristically sweet, kind, fervent prayer that my son would be okay. I was kind of hit with a little bit of conviction. I, at that moment, was being schematized more into the world, and yes, you can do it with ministry, that said, I'm Chaplain Matt. I'm always there for you. I'm going to help you through this most difficult time. And all I was thinking about was my job and not my primary job, which was father. And here, my colleague, who has also my primary job, but is not father to my child, said, you know what? Let's pause. Let's invite God into this moment. And he prayed, and I turned around, and I said, I think I'm going to take him home. I got stuff re-figured out, and just as I was hanging up the phone uh, with one of the clinical managers, I heard the sound of vomit in the back seat of my car. So uh, I set JP on the couch, uh, went to my car, and was cleaning puke, and was doing laundry, and I have to confess to you, I never thought that that would be therapeutic in my entire life to sit and clean puke out of the back seat of my car, because certainly when that happened in my life before, it was not fun. But I stopped, because I wasn't being schematized to the world of my head. I was being given a living hope that there is love, that my call and my conduct is to be a father, is to be close to the people that are closest to me. And that was when it became a living hope. Because it was there with me right then, it healed me. And that's when I finally heard the locker room talk that Peter was trying to give these Christians in this letter. And hang on to this as you hear Pastor Jason preach on the rest of the letter. Now, 
anytime you see a locker room talk or I played sports uh, a little bit, not well, the coach in the locker room always would say, gentlemen, the score is 0-0, right? No matter what the score was. That's what you're supposed to say as a coach. The score is 0-0. Play like it's 0-0. Play as if it's a new beginning. But Peter does one better. Because of Jesus Christ, the score is 70 to like 3. So go out there and play the game like you've already won. That's a living hope. Amen. Amen. Amen.